Let's get to it. Hey, get your Bible out, open it up, and uh, turn with me to Psalm 33. That's where we're going to be today. Psalm 33. I asked Bill Elliff to come speak to our staff about four or six weeks ago. Uh, Bill is a former pastor. He, he's in his early 70s now. He pastored for quite a while. He is a, uh, a writer, speaker, but but more importantly, he is a student of revivals and spiritual awakenings. And he had just come back from Asbury, where there was a unique movement of God happening in that little university in Kentucky. So I asked him to come talk to us about it. It all started really in February the 8th, uh, where there was a chapel service. And then afterwards, a handful of students gathered to pray. And that prayer gathering continued uninterrupted, nonstop, 24-7 for the next 16 days. What started with just maybe 20 students grew to 200, then grew to 2,000. Ultimately, over 20,000 people made their way to Wilmore, Kentucky to sit in on what seemed to be a stirring of God like the times of old. And uh, there was, there was a, a, a moving and an awakening. Over 250 students from other campuses saw what was happening there and, and took those stories back to their own campuses. We began to see sparks of prayer gatherings in other campuses across the country. And so people have asked me, what do you, what do you think about the Asbury revival? What do, you, what do you think about that? What do we make of this? There are critics, of course, and there are those or the advocates but I would just say this, I, I believe that when, when a country is in confusion like ours is and when, when things are dark spiritually, it seems to please God in his heart to stir the hearts of his people to seek him. And that we, when we seek him like that, we, we find that God is in control and that we can trust him. Now, that's really what Psalm 33 is all about. If you were going to take your pen and write a heading over the top of Psalm 33, what is the gist of this psalm? You could just write down, God's in control and I can trust him. Because you see this over and over and over throughout the whole psalm, this reminder that God is in control. And as we're moving into July 4th weekend, we're thinking about the, the, the state of our nation now. Now more than ever, we need to be reminded that God's in control. Amen? That God's in control and we can trust him. So let's just get right into it. Psalm 33, and we're going to go ahead and just kind of work our way through this psalm. And I just hope that you would ask the Lord to speak to you. You'd be listening eagerly, uh, anticipating what God uh, would say to you today. Psalm 33, beginning of verse 1. This is the word of God. Rejoice in the Lord, you righteous ones. Praise from the upright is beautiful. Praise the Lord with a lyre. Make music to him with a ten-stringed harp. Sing a new song to him. Play skillfully on the strings with a joyful shout. Now, right off the bat, King David, who I believe wrote this psalm, King David is calling us to worship God. He's calling us to praise the Lord. And if you ever wonder what God thinks about worship, you know, like when you're on Sunday morning, you're singing, wonder what God thinks about what we're doing here. This verse tells us right in verse one, he said, the praise of the righteous is beautiful in God's eyes. 
Isn't that awesome? That God sees that as a beautiful thing. When your heart is right, when your motives are pure, when you're really just with genuineness, setting your affection and your attention on God, that is a beautiful thing. I don't know about you, but there have been moments when I've been in a worship experience and I'm like, it's like God just showed up. It was like a, just a, a movement of God, a revealing of his presence with us. I don't know if you ever experienced something like that. And you go, man, this is just, I just don't want to leave here, man. This is just so good. I don't want to, I don't want to leave this moment. And it's beautiful to us, but from God, it's a beautiful thing too. It's a beautiful thing. You know, worship is not just a warm up for the preaching, okay? Uh, they're not just a worship warm up band, all right, for the main thing. Worship is part of what we offer to God, it's our gift to God. He deserves it, He's the one that receives it. We are giving it to Him. It's not what we get from worship, it's what we give to God in worship that really matters. You know, we, we see this in Revelation. Every time I think about worship, I think about Revelation chapter 4 and 5. We studied Revelation last year. And there's a scene in heaven where all these, you know, these people are there, angels are there, just countless crowd, and Jesus takes center stage, and everyone goes face down, and they begin to worship Jesus, and it says they sing a new song, and here it is. Worthy is a lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Now, folks, that's happening now. That's what's happening in heaven right now. There is worship of Jesus Christ right now. Listen, when you get to heaven, guess what you're going to do? You're going to worship Jesus Christ. I can't find uh, much evidence for preaching in heaven, but I can show you a lot of evidence of worship in heaven. We're all going to worship God in heaven, and what a day that's going to be. You know, I have some people say, well, you know, I just kind of like to sit out, you know, in the hallway until the, the music is done. Then I'll come in uh, for worship. And I'm like, man, you're just missing out on your opportunity to give to God what he thinks is a beautiful gift, and that is your personal act of worship. That's what he wants. It's beautiful to him. And David's calling us to worship God. Man, this is a beautiful thing. And he goes on to describe what beautiful worship looks like. Look at it. It's instrumental worship. He says, play the lyre and the harp. You know, we don't have a lot of lyre solos uh, these days, you know. Not a lot of 10-string harp things going on here, but we got guitars, you know. And we got a, we got a bass, and we got, we got some drum, we got a keyboard. Those are the instruments. But what he is saying here is that worship is not just only people that vocalize their worship, but some of you have got giftings and talents to play, and that is acceptable worship as well to God, and we need you to use that. It's instrumental worship. It's also current worship. He says, sing a new song, a new song. Now, we love the old songs. We love the old songs. Old songs are awesome, but we need new songs too, because God is not just a God of the past. He's a God of the present, and God is working now. And every generation writes songs that reflect their own personal praise back to God. And so listen, if you have a talent to write songs, please write new songs unto the Lord. And let us participate in singing them to him in praise. It's contemporary worship. It's current worship. It's also excellent worship. He says, play skillfully. 
play accurately, play with, with, your, with your very best. And I'm so thankful for our worship team because you don't see it, but I see it. Every week they're practicing, they're rehearsing, they're going over and over and over. And not just who you see on the platform, but in the back booth, all the technicians, you don't know how many people it actually takes to make this happen every week. And they work so hard to make sure it's excellent, not for you, but for the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think we, can we just give them a thank you for all the work that they do that leads us in worship. So play skillfully. And then, then check this one out. Some of you are going to not like this one. Loud worship, all right? <laughs> loud. It's too loud in here. He says a shout, a joyful shout. You know, some of you went, grew up in churches where you were to be reverent and quiet and still, right? And, uh, and refined and formal. Uh, but David is not talking about that. And listen, I've seen you at football games, okay? I do watch. I, I do see. I see you when somebody hits a grand slam, man. I see how you react. And there's like, woo! And there's shouting and there's exuberance. And, and that's what David's calling for. Man, our worship should be like that. Man, hands up and shouting and clapping and celebration. Man, when somebody comes in here that doesn't know Jesus, they mean, these people are fired up about God. And we should be, right? We ought to be because, well, he tells us in this song, because he's in control and we can trust him. All the way through, this psalm is telling us that he is in control. You know, when you uh, pull up Google Earth, I love it. It starts off and you see the ball, the earth in space, right? And then it kind of presses in and you see nations. And then you press a little bit more and you'll start to see cities. And then you press in a little bit more and it just keeps pushing in, pushing in. And it gets all the way to right where you are on the planet in the moment. It's pretty cool, isn't it? Just zooming right on in. Now listen, that's what this Psalm 33 is doing. It starts off with God's in control of creation. Big view, picture. And then he goes, zooms in and says, and God's in control of the nations. And then he presses in a little bit more and says, and God's even in control of what's happening in your life right now. So with that in mind, let's, uh, let's look at the Psalm. He says, God's in control of creation. Look at verse four. For the word of the Lord is right and all his work is trustworthy. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the Lord's unfailing love. The heavens were made by the word of the Lord and all the stars by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the water of the sea into a heap and puts the depths into storehouses. Let the whole earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him for he spoke and it came into being. He commanded, and it came into existence. David reminds us that God created everything. God created it all. Everything we see in creation, God created. And how did he create it? He spoke. Get that? He spoke. Look at it. I'm just pointing this out. Verse 4, the word of the Lord. Verse 6, the word of the Lord. Verse 6, the breath of his mouth. Verse 9, he spoke. Verse 9, he commanded. That is, he spoke and it happened. 
It's kind of like when you're in the kitchen, you say, hey, Siri, play some country music, and it just starts, right? They're kind of in that way. God just said, hey, I'd like to see something, and boom, it happens. Let there be are the three powerful words that we read in Genesis 1. Let there be light, and it happened. Let there be land, and it happened. Oceans, and it happened. Let there be vegetation, and it happened. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth by the word of his mouth. Theologians call that ex nihilo, out of nothing, out of vacancy. God created substance out of nothing. That's just how big and how great God is. And then he kind of zeroes in on two areas of creation that seem so vast and so chaotic and so scary that, that even God's in charge of that. The first one are the heavens. Look at verse 6. The heavens were made by the word of the Lord. All the stars by the breath of his mouth. Think about it. When you look up and you see the heavens, you see all the stars of creation. God created all those things. He spoke all those things into being. Space is so vast. Scientists are now telling us that they measure the distance from planet Earth to the very edge of the ever-expanding universe they anticipate that that is the distance of 46 million light years away. Now, can you even try to wrap your mind around a light year, how far light travels in a year, and then tack on 46 million of those? That's how far we are from the edge of the understandable universe. In fact, they said if you could step back across the universe and get a tape measure and just measure it out, it would be 93 million light years in diameter. I mean, it's just, just hard to wrap your mind around that. You say, Craig, can you give us that in miles? Well, yeah, I can give, you, give that to you in miles. That's uh, 540 sectillion miles, which is 54 with 22 zeros at the end of it, all right? That is a big universe. That's how big God is. And he's like, man, he just spoke all that. And that just came into being and he controls all that. He holds all of that. That's how big God is. He created the heavens, and then he takes another concept, and that is the oceans or the depths. You know, the ancient people always thought of the depths as scary and chaotic and dangerous, and it still is today. Some of you followed this last week, the terrible tragedy of that submersible that was crushed right there by the, the location of the Titanic. Five souls lost. But what we learned in all that story is how crushing the weight is at the bottom of the ocean. You go down to 12,000 feet down to the bottom of the ocean. They said the, the pressure at that depth is equivalent to 4,000 tons on top of you. Can you imagine? It's like the whole weight of the ocean just pressing down. And you know what David says about the ocean? Oh, God stores that in a jar in his garage. All right. That's how big God is. And he's just bigger than the heavens. He's like just, he's so much bigger than the ocean. I mean, anything you can conceive with your little bitty mind of what you think God's about, he's so much bigger than that. And when we go, well, I don't really agree with God. And I think God should have done such a, you know, we don't, God, God doesn't really think, care about what we think. All right. He's just so much bigger than that. Right. He's so much greater than that. And, and David's trying to lift our eyes to see the God we worship. When we gather, we worship God. He's in control of everything. He's in charge of everything. He's in charge of all of creation. 
So he says God's in charge of creation. And then he kind of zooms in. He says now he's in charge of creation. He's in charge of the nations. Of the nations. Look at verse 10. The Lord frustrates the counsel of the nations. He thwarts the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. Notice verse 10. He says the nations have got plans the nations have got strategies. They've got agendas. Uh, but God thwarts those. He frustrates those. He's got plans that are greater. If you go to Jerusalem and you look at the southeast part of the old city, there is a hill there which is called the Hill of Evil Council. And kind of legendary story holds that it was on that hill that the Religious leaders gathered to plot against Jesus, to plot his death. The hill of evil counsel. Today, on the hill of evil counsel sits the headquarters for the United Nations in Jerusalem. Does anybody think that's a little ironic? Yeah. And you know, here it is, the nations planning, the nations scheming, and yet God thwarts those plans. You know, there have been kingdoms that have been established and kings that have fallen from the very beginning of time. And it's almost like time, like the tide just washes over every empire and wipes the slate clean. But God's plans endure forever and ever and ever. Are we over here warning, what's going to happen in Russia right now? Oh, what's going to happen in China? And when is Iran going to do this? And what's going to happen in South America? And what are you, you know, are we, are we doing that? No, no, because God's in charge of the nations. His plans prevail. His plans uh, succeed. They're from generation to generation. Nations plan their thing. They come to an end. God's plans are the ones that last. And then he gets down to verse 12. Happy is a nation whose God is the Lord, the people he has chosen for his own possession. Now, clearly David's talking here about Israel. Israel is the Lord's possession. He is a nation whose God is the Lord especially from, you know, David's perspective. But even Israel, now check this out, even Israel did not always love the Lord. After they came out of bondage in Egypt, they settled in the promised land. There was a period of time, about 450 years, where they, they got into a cycle that was not a very good cycle. The cycle really started something like this. They would uh, be loving God, putting God first, worshiping God, obeying God. And then they would begin to kind of drift. And they would start to kind of do the things that the pagan nations were doing around them and start doing those practices. And then they would start sinning against God. And that would become very pervasive. Then the Lord would send a prophet to come and warn them. Hey, get your act together, man. Get back to God. And uh, the people would listen. And they would persist in their rebellion. And then finally, God would bring a punishment. God would bring judgment. Either evil kings would rule over them or outside nations would oppress them. And then finally, when it got so bad, they would cry out to God, oh God, can you see? Oh God, can you help us? God, deliver us from this oppression that we face. And then there would be a spiritual awakening and renewal and God would right the ship. And then guess what? They'd start to do it all over again. In the book of Judges, 
They go through this cycle at least seven times, 12 different judges that go through the cycle. Now, here's what you need to know. When David is writing this psalm, he's looking back on that history. He knows Israel's history of this cycle of rebellion and revival, rebellion and revival, rebellion and revival. And he said, it's so much better, so much better when the nation just loves the Lord, right? Where we stand today, we can look back over our own nation's history and see a similar cycle of rebellion and revival. There have been several consecutive spiritual awakenings in the history of our country. In the early 1700s, sin was pervasive. People were drifting from God spiritually, and God brought the first great awakening, 1730 to 1740. During that 10-year period of time, get this, 15% of the American population came to faith in Jesus. If God were to give us a revival like that today, just in the DFW area, that would be 1.2 million new believers. Can you imagine what our churches would be like on that next Sunday? Just overflowing, right? With new believers because God had created the spiritual awakening. That happened in the early 1700s of our country. But after that, people began to drift from God. The second great awakening happened in the early 1800s. During this time, our nation was really shaped spiritually. Churches were planted, universities were founded, hospitals were created, seminaries were formed. It was a great movement of God, but then even after that, people began to drift from the Lord. In 1857, the business prayer revival took place. 500,000, I mean 50,000 people gathered in New York City to pray for God's supernatural intervention in our country. And as a result of that prayer, over 1 million new converts to Christ in our country, right out of New York City. And God moved in a powerful way. But again, people began to drift from the Lord. The Welch revival took place in 1904. And some of the uh, Revival embers made their way over to our country, and we saw sparks of revival across our country during that time period. But the last spiritual awakening we've experienced in our country happened in the early 1970s with what we know as the Jesus movement, where God began to do a new work among a new generation. The Southern Baptist Convention records that in one year, they had the most baptisms of any in recorded history. It was a powerful year of thousands and thousands of young people coming to faith in Christ. But even then, our country's drifted. Why has God given us, it seems, every 60, 70 years, a spiritual awakening? Why is that? I don't know. I can only attribute it to the grace of God because there are countries in our, in our world that have never had a spiritual awakening. Not one. And God has given us five, six. But here we stand again in desperate need of spiritual awakening and renewal. And I pray that that would happen in our lifetime. But here's what David is saying in this psalm. He's like, the Lord is sovereign over nations. In his hand is judgment or revival. Judgment or spiritual awakening. And he can give as he chooses. 
And so when we see corruption in its highest level, when we see the fear of economic class, when we see international conflict, when we see uh, cultural drifts where good is bad and bad is good, when we see all this confusion around us, David's reminding us to hit our knees because God is in control. He is the one that can stir up our hearts again to seek his face. God's in control. You can trust him. He's in control of creation. He's in control of the nations. And then look, it zeroes in now on your life. Look at verse 13. The Lord looks down from heaven and he observes everyone. That includes you and me. He gazes on all the inhabitants of the earth from his dwelling place. He formed the hearts of them all. He considers their works. Look down to verse 18. But look, the Lord keeps his eye on those who fear him, those who depend on his faithful love. He rescues them from death and keeps them alive in famine. Here is God. He's in control of creation. And now he's in control of the nations. And then it zooms on down. He's in control of you. He sees you. I mean, look at it. It says here, verse 13, the Lord looks. Verse 14, he gazes. Verse 15, he considers. Verse 18, he keeps his eye on those who fear him. He is looking at you. He sees you as an individual. It's really amazing, isn't it? That the God of the universe would care about me, would see me, would love me. You know, I think about this, I think about going to the beach with your family. Maybe, maybe you've got uh, kids or grandkids and you go off to the beach. Uh, some of you have already been to the beach. I can tell you're dark and tan. Uh, some of us, our bodies are not made for the beach. That's, that's my body, all right? I'm translucent most of the time, and that's, that's the way God made me. Anyway, uh, but, but you go to the beach and you set up your little thing, get your umbrella, and everybody's kind of making their space where they're going to be for the day. Some of you got the little tent things that you set up, and, and here's where we're going to play our volleyball, and here's where all of our stuff's going to be. And if you've got little kids, they're out there playing around on the beach. Some of them are looking at shells, you know, and they're kind of being chased by the waves. But, but the parent is always watching. That kid is not going anywhere that that parent doesn't know. Because you don't want to get them in the water. You don't want them getting in the water. You don't want them getting too far down or losing their way. So you're always keeping your eye on them. That's what this verse means. God is watching you. Now, that conjures up two emotions. For some people, that's kind of a fearful thing. Like, you mean I'm being surveilled right now? Uh, yes. Yeah, God's seeing you. And if you don't know Christ, what that means is God, man, he sees you. He hears you. He knows the thoughts in your mind. He knows what comes out of your mouth. And every one of those actions, you will stand before God to give an account. Everything is uncovered before his eyes, the scripture says. But listen, for the child of God, that's a real comforting thing. That my daddy in heaven sees me. And let me just say this, because some of you may need to hear this, and I want you to really listen. God sees you. God knows you. He knows what you're going through. He knows your hurt. He knows your disappointment. He knows your loneliness. He knows your pain. He knows the strain that's happening in your family or the pressure you're under at work or the fear of loss that you may be experiencing. And he cares for you. You're not just a, a faceless person. You're not just a number in his mind. 
You are his own. And David said, yeah, God's in control of all these things around us, the creation, the nations, but he, but he loves you. And why does God love us? And why does God set his eye on us? Verse 19 tells us to rescue them from death. I love how the King James Version puts it, to deliver their souls from death. And that's exactly why Jesus came. See, the Bible tells us that creation declares the glory of God. Romans 1 says, man, the creation is there in such a way that we are without excuse. We can look at creation and know that there's a God. But, but God revealed himself fully and completely in the person of Jesus Christ. He stepped out of heaven and on earth and he revealed, not in general revelation, but now in specific personal revelation. Jesus said to look at me, to see me is to see the Father. And he revealed himself and he showed us what it means to know who God is. And then he went to a cross and he died on that cross for your sin and for mine so that we could be forgiven of our rebellion, forgiven of our wickedness and our sin, and we could be reconciled to God. And that's why Jesus came. And right here in verse 9, you have the essence of Christ's saving mission because he came to save our souls from death. He came to reconcile us. To the Father, he came for you. God's in control, and you can trust him. He's in control of creation. He holds it all together. He's in control of the nations. He has both judgment and revival in his hands. He's in control of your life, and he loves you, and has sent his own son to rescue you. So how do we, how do we respond to this? You get down to the end of the psalm, how do we respond to this? Well, one way we respond, we've already seen, is through worship. This is why we gather and we sing. And that's why he's saying, man, let's sing. Let's sing, right? Let's worship God. Let somebody give me a shout, right? Let somebody just clap their hands because God's in control. And when we get together and we worship, the reason why we're doing it is not because we always do it or, again, it's the warm-up band for the preacher. No, no, we're reminding ourselves that God's in control, we're reminding ourselves through song that God is in control and we can trust him. So we worship God. But then number two thing we do in response is we wait on God. Look at verse 20. We wait for the Lord. He is our help, our shield. For our heart rejoices in him because we trust in his holy name. Listen, listen to me. Everybody's eye up right here. If you're trusting in a political party to fix everything. Is that going to work? Somebody tell me, is that going to work? Uh, no, you're going to be really disappointed. Man, if I could just get this person elected, man, they're going to fix everything. Well, no, not, not really. If you're trusting in your company, man, if I could just get to the top of my company, then I would really, then my, that's where my hope is. No, that's going to fail. If you're trusting in a relationship, well, man, man, my wife's supposed to make me happy. My husband's going to make me happier. If I have kids, they'll make me happy. If God will give me grandkids, that'll make me happy. If I could just get to retirement, if I could just play, you know, more golf or go on more hunting trips or, you know, just go on more vacation, then that's going to make me happy. None of those things are going to satisfy your soul. Putting your hope in anything other than Jesus Christ is a failed effort. There is no hope in it. But my friends, when you put your hope, you say, man, God's in control. My hope is in him. My joy is in him. No matter what is happening around me, I know that he holds me safe in the palm of his hand. That's the comfort that David had. 
And he said, I'm going to wait on him. He's going to work it all out, and I'm just going to trust him. I'm going to walk with him, and I'm going to wait on him. And that brings us all the way back to the Asbury Revival. That's what those students were doing. At the end of that chapel service, they've had chapel services before. A handful of people said, you know what, let's just wait on God. And let's cry out to him and see what he does. And a handful began to pray and wait on the Lord and seek him and and cry out to him. And God showed up. And you know what? That's what God wants in your life. God wants you to seek him. God wants you to wait on him. God wants you to cry out to him, the God who is in control, the one you can trust. And he will move and revive your heart again. Maybe, Maybe you need revival in your own personal life. You have your own cycles of rebellion and revival. Can you look back at your own life and say, man, I remember when I was so far from God and then God brought me back and then I kind of drift away from the Lord and God brought me back again. I mean, we all go through these own, our own personal cycle of rebellion and revival and maybe you feel very far from God, very distant from God right now. If you seek him, if you say, God, my only hope is in you, he will revive you again. He will meet with you again. He will restore you again. And then David closes with this last verse. By the way, all the psalm up to this point is all directed toward us. He's saying, God's in control. Sing, wait on the Lord, worship him. He's over the creation. He's over nations. He's over your life. It's all horizontal communication. And then at the very last, he turns it vertical. And he voices a prayer, only one verse that's a prayer. Look at what he says. May your faithful love rest on us, Lord, for we put our hope in you. May your faithful love rest on us, Lord, for we put our hope in you. That's my prayer for us on this July 4th weekend, that we would put our our hope and our trust in Jesus that we would ask for his faithful love to rest on us, that God would stir our hearts personally, that we would be awakened again spiritually and that God would do that in our church and that God would spill that over into our country and that maybe in our lifetime we could see another outpouring of the Spirit of God to renew us again, refresh us again and turn our hearts to the Lord. Would you bow your head with me for just a minute? That prayer of David, may your faithful love rest on us, Lord, for we put our hope in you. Would you just pray that back as your own personal prayer right now? Just pray that back. Lord, let your faithful love rest on me. I put my hope in you. Just pray that. Pray for your family. Lord, let your faithful love rest on us. We put our hope in you. You're the God that's in control of everything. Now let's pray that for our country. Lord, let your faithful love rest on us. We put our hope in you. Lord, we come to you today.
as flawed, broken people in need of your grace. And Lord, it's so easy for us to see all that's happening around us and read every tweet and and look at everything we see on uh, social media and, and, and on, on, on TV. And we, we could just get so unsettled, so hard to parse out what is right and what is true and what's not, what's real, what's not. But Lord, we come into your presence and we know who you are. The Lord, you created it all. The Lord, you are sovereign over the nations and, and, you, and you lift nations up and you bring them down. You bring judgment and you bring revival. This is all in your hands. And Lord, even what we're going through this week, what we're going to walk through in this week, Lord, we know that you see it. That you care for us. And that's why you sent Jesus to us. To rescue us so that we could walk with you and know you. So, Lord, we cry out to you. We wait on you now. Lord, let your faithful love rest on us. Shine your mercy and your grace on us, Lord. Revive our hearts again, Lord, that we would seek you and desire you and worship you. And, Lord, let that spill over into this country. God, give us revival again. Refresh us again, Lord. Hear our voice. Hear our cry, God bring awakening and spiritual renewal again so the next generation will praise you and worship you for our hope is in you we pray this in Jesus name would you stand with me and let's worship him together